Hi, this is the bonus episode for the oceans episode of Flash Forward. I've been sick this week and maybe you'll be able to tell because I got a bit of the brain fog situation going on, um, but we're going to make it through. You're going to get this bonus episode. Um, it's going to get done. Hopefully it makes some sense. Um, I probably sound a little weird to you. That's because I am sick. So um, I still want to get this out though, because there are a bunch of really cool things I want to talk to you about, about both this episode and then also just sort of looking back on the season, this little mini season of five episodes. So, um, let's start with a couple little things that I cut from the episode, um, because they weren't super relevant or didn't really need to be in there, but I got really interested in them. So the first one is that I did a bunch of reading about Ponzi schemes for this episode because Daniel Pauly, who you heard on the show loves to describe the current sort of situation with fishing as a Ponzi scheme, right? Where you keep putting in investments and you keep being promised sort of more and more and more returns on those investments. And eventually that kind of like house of cards comes falling down. And, um, when I was writing the script, I did some Googling cause I wanted to make sure that I actually understood what a Ponzi scheme was. I think it's like a phrase that I'm, I thought I knew, but you know, you know how sometimes you don't, you think you know something, but you then have to describe it or have to explain what it is. And you're like, wait, do I actually know what that is? So I looked it up and I started doing some reading on Ponzi schemes. And what I found is that Ponzi schemes are named after a guy named Charles Ponzi, who was doing these sorts of schemes um, in the 1920s. But the cool thing is that there was actually a woman who was doing this um, almost 40 years before him named Sarah Howe. And I just want to talk to you about her a little bit because she is fascinating to me. So Sarah Howe, um, if you go to Sarah Howe's Wikipedia page, it says Sarah Howe, parentheses, fraudster, which is a great way to have your Wikipedia entry uh, to for you to live on in memoriam um, forever. But um, Sarah Emily Howe was born maybe in 1826. Like any good fraudster, we actually don't know that much about her. Um, we're not sure exactly when she was born. We don't know a lot about her personal life or her sort of early life. She was maybe married to a guy named James Solomon, but that marriage might have actually been annulled due to miscegenation laws. Um which are laws that say that um, white people can't marry with non-white people. Um, and again, this is like the 1830s, 18, 1830s-ish. Um, and then at some point she becomes a psychic or sort of a, a palm reader, that kind of person. And she does that for a while. And then in 1879, she decides that she's going to get in on this game of banking. Um, and so she opens a bank called the Ladies Deposit Company in 1879. And this is a bank that accepts deposits only from unmarried women. So she tells these women that she is going to get them this huge return on their investments. Um, and when people start asking questions about how the returns that she's offering are even possible, she actually makes up this story about how she's working with a Quaker charity that wants to help women and they are sort of fronting a lot of this money. Um, and she winds up um, promising an 8% per month interest rate, which is extraordinarily high. She basically promises that by the end of the year, you'll double your investment, which is like completely absurd. So this goes on for a while. She winds up preying on a ton of women and she ends up attracting $500,000 in deposits from about 1,200 women for this bank. And that's in 1880s dollars. So 500,000 in 1880s dollars is about $17 million in today's money. Um, so she's defrauding just on this huge scale. Um, people are coming into her office. They love the way that it looks. Um, she does this thing where she creates this bank, um, sort of this 
aura in the bank. So, you know, everything is really beautiful. It's really, it's styled after sort of a Victorian parlor. Um, And she had critics. Obviously, there were people who immediately saw the promises she was making and said, like, wait a minute, this doesn't make any sense. You can't really offer 8% returns. And um, they write about her a lot in in a variety of newspapers. And um, they really, they really home in on her, uh, her being a woman, first of all, and there was a lot of sexism in these pieces, but they also really home in on the fact that she is able to really cater to a female audience. Um, I'm going to read to you a little bit from um, one of the um, newspapers that talks about her. So, um, and this is actually a newspaper that thinks that she's great, that thinks that she really like knows what she's doing because she knows how to market to women. And they say, the furniture of which there are many pieces is upholstered in raw silk of old gold figured patterns and corresponds in tone and design with the walls. An elegant piano with its crimson cover occupies the corner of the room. And in the opposite corner is the large rolling black walnut desk at which the money is received and paid out. The carpets are of a deep warm warm tone, and all the ornaments are rich and in good taste. The display of steed engravings in the first or counting room is noteworthy, while the oil paintings in the reception rooms show discrimination in their selection. And so they kind of ping this idea that she knows how to use decor and style to seduce female clients. Um, So eventually this, again, like any Ponzi scheme sort of has to come to an end. Um, In 1880, the Boston Daily Advertiser starts publishing sort of a series of articles that attack the ladies deposit company as a, a Ponzi scheme, which is what it is, although they didn't have that word yet, right? That's not coined until 1920. Um, And it ends up leading to a run on the bank by the people, the women who have deposited there. And then by October of that year, the scheme has sort of collapsed. And uh, Sarah Howe is charged with multiple counts of fraud. She is convicted and she serves three years in prison. So she serves her three years and then she gets out. And what does she do? She opens another fraudulent bank called the Women's Bank. And this is basically the exact same thing. It just promises a slightly lower interest rate. So instead of promising 8%, she promises 7%. And again, it works. She accepts an estimated $50,000 in deposits before that fraud is exposed in 1887. So she flees Boston before she can really be indicted there, goes to other cities, and she attempts this scheme over and over again. She tries it in Chicago. She tries it in a couple of other places. Eventually, in 1888, she comes back to Boston where she is arrested, but she's released a couple of months later because the victims of this fraud were sort of unwilling to go through all of the work it would require to prosecute her. So she winds up um, getting out after just a couple of months and then goes back to fortune telling um, until she dies in 1892. So Sarah Howe is fascinating to me for a variety of reasons. Recently, I think there's been sort of a lot of interest in fraudsters, right? We had the Firefest documentary. We had the Elizabeth Holmes book and podcast. Um, there are all of these people who are sort of being outed as frauds. And, um, you know, I think some people sort of will say things like, oh, it's the era of fraud because you can, you know, anybody can claim anything on the internet. And I think that that's really funny and ahistorical because there have been people who have been committing these kinds of frauds for so long, including Sarah Howe in the 1880s, who really knew how to do it and actually knew, I mean, all of the things that you hear about the current fraudsters doing, you know, she did, right? She knew how to create an aura. She knew how to create a brand. She knew how to attract people. She knew how to promise things. She was really charismatic. Um, And so she is this character that kind of looms over, um, over fraud and I think is really interesting. And again, she comes, you know, 40 years before Charles Ponzi, who the Ponzi scheme is named after, whereas, you know, she was doing this before. Um, And I think that that's really interesting. The other thing that is really interesting to me about Sarah Howe in general is that she's a part of this movement 
in the late 1800s where women start to get into banking. And this is something that historians, I think, are really interested in these days. There's a paper that I found about Sarah Howe called Depicting a Female Fraud, Sarah Howe and the Boston Women's Bank by George Robb. I will post a link to this um, article in the notes for this episode. But I want to read to you a couple of things from it because it actually highlights why I think she's so interesting. So the first sentence of this paper is really lovely. Uh, It says, quote, During the past 20 years, a veritable bonanza of new scholarship, literary and historical, has argued that women played a vital economic role in the rise of capitalism in Europe and the Americas. So I think that a lot of us have this idea that because women were not allowed to, you know, necessarily own businesses or be the head, the main breadwinner or the head of the household for so long, they didn't have a lot of power and they didn't do a lot of influencing in the rise of capitalism and the stock market and banking and all these structures that kind of rise in Europe and the United States and the Americas in general. And these historians are sort of saying that that's not true, actually. Women in, were totally engaged with finance, like banking and the stock market, and in in fact, they were really engaged with banking because it was the only thing that they were allowed to do, essentially. And it was advertised to them as kind of their only option. So the paper also says, although women were barred from politics, the professions and many forms of enterprise, they could still participate in the period's robust investment economy by buying and selling shares of the stock exchange and by placing their savings in banks. Indeed, women frequently comprised the majority of both depositors and shareholders in the 19th century banks, which were recommended to them as a safe and conservative investment. So the stock market was originally really marketed at women because it was the only way that they could kind of participate in this sort of new economic structure. They weren't allowed to do a lot of the things that the men were allowed to do in terms of building up the structures of capitalism, but they were allowed to buy stocks and, and put their money in banks. And it was advertised to them as the what they should be doing because that was the only thing that was available to them. So today we think of the stock market as being this like totally male-dominated space. There are movies about it, right? Um, there are all these stories about how cutthroat and how male-dominated um, things like investing are. But in fact, at the beginning of this, it was something that was largely advertised to women and it was actually comprised mostly of women who helped kind of push this idea of the stock market because it was the only place that they were allowed to participate, which I think is super interesting and actually tracks with so many other examples, right? Women were the original computer programmers. Basketball was actually originally a women's sport. And then once it got popular, women were pushed out. And now it's like hard to get people to watch the WNBA. There are all of these examples of something that starts out as a women's enterprise and is advertised to women. And then once it gets popular and powerful, men come back in and take over. So I think that's really interesting. um, And I wanted to kind of tell you a little bit about it. I might end up writing an article about this because I now find Sarah Howe very fascinating. And I've ordered like four books from the library about her. So I've gotten really deep into this historical rabbit hole. So that's fun. So the other thing that I cut from the episode, but I want to tell you about is actually a sort of similar historical anecdote, which is about the tragedy of the commons. So did you know that the phrase the tragedy of the commons was coined in 1968 by a guy named Garrett Hardin in the paper Science Magazine? So I always thought that the tragedy of the commons was like a really old concept. Like, I don't know, maybe like Hume or John Locke or some old white guy like that kind of coined it, you know, many, many years ago. In fact, not true. 1968, um, Science Magazine. um, And you are probably familiar with the concept of the tragedy of the commons, right? This idea that if everybody has access to a resource, they wind up sort of each acting selfishly instead of in the common good, and they ruin or completely deplete that resource. But here's the thing. 
that I didn't know until researching it for this episode. Um, Garrett Hardin, the guy who wrote that paper, eventually admitted that he did not stand behind it. In fact, there are lots and lots of historians who believe that the tragedy of the commons is kind of a bunk thing. It's based on historical anecdotes that are sort of not true. There are lots of examples of common spaces that are managed totally well and that don't fall uh, into this tragedy of the commons. The other weird thing is that I didn't know, again, that the tragedy of the commons as a concept in this paper for Science Magazine was actually originally um, something that Garrett Hardin wrote because he wanted population control. He wanted people to not be allowed to have more babies, which is sort of lost, I think, in the way that people talk about tragedy of the commons today. Um, And the paper has sort of been really roundly criticized um, in in all sorts of academic literature. So the, the most biting description that I read of the paper was this. It described the paper as, quote, the sort of sociobabble that today can be found on the average blog. Oh, <laughs> yikes. Um, so I think that's fascinating. And this idea that we kind of use this phrase, the tragedy of the commons, and accept it as kind of a real thing and a, a sort of scientific thing or a thing that um, has been around for a long time. But in fact, it's a relatively new concept that's based on sort of ahistorical information and that even the guy who coined the phrase no longer stands behind. Um, so that's really interesting to me that the sort of ways that these phrases kind of persist in our lexicon, even if they don't necessarily hold up to the original version that they were. were. So I'm going to post a bunch of links to information about that and sort of history and critiques of the tragedy of the commons as a concept in the notes for this episode. So that's the other fun thing that I cut out of the episode. And the third thing, which I mentioned in the episode but couldn't really get into, is this thing about whales and whale counting. So Daniel Pauly, who wrote this book, Vanishing Fish, Shifting Baselines and the Future of Global Fisheries, he was on the episode. He talked a little bit about the ways that people used to blame the environment for depleting fish stocks. So this idea that like it couldn't possibly be us, we are not overfishing, it's that whales or seals are eating too much or it's that El Nino is happening and sort of depleting the fish stocks. And today I think it's generally accepted that that's not true. But there is this really interesting wrinkle in that concept, which is that there are some countries, and it's mostly Japan, who would really like to be allowed to hunt whales. And this is a really tricky and complicated topic. And I think um, I've read a lot of papers that suggest that the actual average Japanese person doesn't want to hunt whales would really rather just the whales be left alone. But there is this sort of subset of officials in the Japanese government who are very invested in the country's ability to hunt whales. Um, And so in order to kind of push this idea that they should be allowed to hunt whales, um, Danielle said that there were a variety of things happening between the Japanese government and governments in other places that might have whales offshore and also might have fisheries offshore. So I'm just going to let him talk about that a little bit. So here is the clip that I cut from the episode. Uh, you could say this is nonsense, this is uh, harmless nonsense, but it is not. Because Japan, in an attempt to get uh, the support of, of other countries in the International Whaling Commission, bribes uh, the Caribbean countries, uh, mainly in the Caribbean, to vote with them. And these bribes are ridiculously low, the equivalent to a car or, or maybe a, just a trip abroad for the ministers on these tiny countries. And in West Africa, uh, I experienced a, a meeting in which uh, the official from these countries that are bribed tried to explain why they vote with Japan that the whale eat their fish. But in West Africa, whales have never been exploited by the local population. And in fact, People like them. They like whales, and they couldn't eat them because many the people are many people are in West Africa Muslims. They couldn't eat the whales anyway, and 
and yet they they took the line of uh, Japan that uh, if they were not if they were not if there were no whales they would, they would catch more fish, which is arrant nonsense because the whales in West Africa are coming there for rest and recreation. They for for actually for reproductive purpose. Like uh, they come to some the grey whale in Mexico, they 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 uh, reproduce in, in lagoon and stuff and don't eat. They don't eat when they have this reproductive uh, during the reproductive season. So they there was uh, such lying, such ill will. So I I remember saying to one of these officials but uh, the calf that are born are not eating anything. Well have we, they, because because they they get milk from their mothers, right? I, has anybody opened their stomach and seen? Uh, they, they, this was this was how you 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 justify uh, acquiring a Toyota from Japan and voting with them at the whaling commission. This is this was sad. It was sad, and at the same time, uh, in West Africa, immense depredation are caused by agreements. Shady agreements with with uh, foreign fishing countries, and uh, that's that literally uh, fish the, the 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 fish out of the mouth of people because the sardines and uh, other fish that are uh, fished there that are exploited there and turn into fish meal for European pigs and salmon, they are eaten by people there. So so it's 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 a it's not only a hilariously. Uh, ridiculous lies. It is also a human tragedy. So there is this chapter in um, Danielle's book that talks about this and talks sort of about this meeting that he went to where people were asking these questions, right? That like, oh, you don't know that the babies aren't eating the fish and all of this. And these biologists kind of trying to push back and say like, no, we we know, we do know. And this actually gets at um, something that Danielle talked a little bit about also that I didn't include in the episode, which is this idea of weaponizing uncertainty as a way to kind of not do something. So um, in these arguments about whales, people will say like, well, you don't know blank. You know, we need to understand better where these whales are and what they're doing and what they're eating. And that's great. You know, knowing more about whale behavior is probably good for conservation in general. But at some point, you do know enough to say, like, no, these whales are not depleting fish stocks off these, you know, nations. We should we should not use that as a rationale for hunting them. And this weaponization of uncertainty is something that has actually come up a couple times in this season, right? This idea that, you know, if we, we don't know enough about climate change to be able to do something, we don't know enough about what's really happening with these fish and how many there are and how much illegal fishing there is so we can't do anything yet. And Danielle says that this is something that he sees a lot in fisheries management where people will say things like, oh, well, we don't have a great picture of the current state of fish stocks and we don't have a great picture of how much illegal fishing there is. So we can't really do anything yet because we don't know the extent of the problem. And he sort of says that, like, no, we know enough to know there is a problem and we shouldn't let that stop us. And we shouldn't let sort of gaps in data stop us from doing something. Um, And this is something we talked about with the first episode, right, about geoengineering, this idea that maybe climate models aren't necessarily the best way for us to try to push policy or, or change in behavior or governments, you know, doing something because it's it's really easy to endlessly say, oh, well, we don't know yet. The model's not good enough yet. We don't have enough data yet. And all the while, you know, like all the fish are dying and, you know, the planet is boiling and everything's turning into desert. So um, Danielle talks about this a lot in his book, this idea that, like, if we just continue to wait until we know exactly what to do or exactly what the data is, then we will all just 
die <laughs> um, or all the fish might die or whatever it is. It's like that classic Borges story on exactitude in science. It's actually, it's very, very short. It's actually one paragraph, but it's about this um, city or this kingdom where basically they decide to, they're really good at cartography and they want a map of the kingdom. And um, basically the map is not precise enough and not precise enough and not precise enough until the map becomes the size of the kingdom. So it's just one to one. And that's when they decide that the, the map is done. And it's, this is a story that people in science tell all the time, right? That like, you never know, you never know enough and you could just continually make it more and more and more accurate until the, the thing becomes the size of the thing that you're trying to do. But I think it's relevant here too, right? That like, if we, if we wait until we know exactly all of the information, then we're kind of screwed. So we should probably not do that. <laughs> um, okay. Those are all the things that I didn't include in the episode that I think are interesting um, and cool. And I hope you find interesting also. Um, I want to do a little bit of season recap. Um, so obviously this episode was the last of the five in the Earth miniseries. Um, this is a totally new format for Flash Forward. It's a big experiment. Um, I'm still kind of trying to figure out whether it's working or not. Some people have really liked it. Some people have really liked the sort of format of having it be um, thematic and having these recurring intros. Some people have really hated it. I've heard from some people who um, really hate the snow globe. Um, other people have written in saying they really love it. So um, I want to talk a little bit first about where the snow globe came from and sort of what the ideas are are here. And also a little bit about um, sort of the way I think about creating these futures, because this comes up every so often where people um, people interpret the future scenes in really interesting ways. So the thing that kind of led to the snow globe is this, um, there was a series of articles that I read from a variety of publications like Bloomberg Business Week and Quartz and um, Fortune. And they were all about the ways in which various companies are talking internally about how they can make money on climate change. And, and this is sort of the like dark truth of capitalism, right? That like everything is a money-making opportunity. And there are all these businesses who are sort of thinking about how do we increase profits in, in, the, in a world of climate change. And so I was thinking a lot about that, sort of the ways that people will try to capitalize on um, climate change and on, on the changing earth. And, and I think we see this already with a lot of different products, but, um, I tried to, kind of, I was kind of trying to like blow that up and parody that in this sort of like hyper-capitalist world where we have things like Shark Tank, we have these investors who are really just trying to make as much return as they possibly can, even if the world is falling apart. Like what does that look like, you know, sort of accelerated by a hundred. And I got a couple of notes from people, um, saying like, I hate the, the, the investors on Shark Tank, I can't believe you want this future. I can't believe you you think this is what what it should be like. And I think that's a really interesting critique because to me, when I think about creating these intros, I think about like what's an interesting future that might feel realistic in, in the context of our current kind of like messed up structures and how can we kind of blow that up and think about it in sort of a caricaturized way. And so to me, you know, thinking about parodying and sort of trying to poke at capitalism and the way that it interacts with things like global climate change and climate catastrophe is an interesting way to think about our future. Um, there is there is an iTunes comment that still to this day drives me completely bananas where um, I had an episode where um, the, the fake president from the future says something like, you know, this thing doesn't discriminate between black or white. And somebody left an iTunes review that basically said like, I can't believe you think in the future there are only two races, black and white. You know, what kind of a future are you imagining? Like, you know, I thought being angry that I that I didn't 
note that there are, in fact, more than two races, black and white, which, of course, there are today and there will be in the future. Um, but that speech was actually basically cribbed almost word for word from a speech that a president actually gave. And these sort of tropes that people use are going to continue in the future. Um, and so there's this really interesting tension, I think, between these fictional intros and people feeling like maybe I'm advocating for these or sort of think that this is the way the future should be or the way the future will be, as opposed to kind of trying to play on the tropes that exist today and that I think will continue to exist tomorrow. Um, maybe that doesn't always work for sure. And I, I totally am open to that. Um, I don't always, I think some of the intro scenes work better than other intro scenes. Um, but that's kind of what I think about when I'm thinking about making these intros is less about like, what's a good future? What's a future that will be, you know, pleasant to listen to and more about like, what does the future look like given what we know today and sort of all the weird and bad things that happen today as well. Um, so this is also one of the perils of having a recurring theme for these future intros, right? Like in the past, it was a different one every time. So if you kind of didn't like it, you didn't have to really worry because you wouldn't hear it again. Whereas with this, if you don't like the snow globe, you have to hear it five times in a row, which is, I think, a fair critique, right? Like it sort of closes out some of the other options and might might alienate some listeners. And I know some people have gotten in touch saying they don't like the snow globe. Um, again, other people have gotten in touch saying they really like it. So, you know, what what to do? Don't know. <laughs> but so for the next season, I am doing a similar thing where it's going to be a recurring sort of structure, a recurring theme, um, totally different, not the snow globe. It's going to be totally different in terms of the characters and who they are and stuff like that. But I am thinking a little bit about whether or not this structure of thematic releases with the recurring um, intro scenes make sense and is a good idea. I'd be all ears to hear what you all think. Um, it is much harder. It's a lot more work because I have to kind of like make them all tie in together. And um, I've hired actors for them. And I've worked with sort of professionals to put put everything together. Um, and so it's a little bit more work. It's also an interesting sort of work structure for me. So in the past, it's been every other week, right, that the show has come out. And so that means that I'm working on about two episodes at a time, generally. Whereas with this, I'm sort of working on all five episodes at the same time. And that's like a lot of work and a lot of extra work. And so it's been interesting to kind of see, I'll, I'll be interested to see um, how, how it unfolds for the next season as well. Okay. Um, the last thing I will say is I'm going to reveal one of the references that I was absolutely positive that nobody would get because it is like completely insane. Okay. So in the Cement Band episode, the um, name of the company is Oryc, O-R-Y-C. And that comes from the name of the European rabbit, Oryctelagus cuniculus, which is the European rabbit. It's all over Europe, and it's particularly found on the Isle of Portland, which is where the name Portland cement comes from. And in fact, these rabbits are very important in Portland, and you're actually not supposed to say the word rabbit because there's a big superstition about rabbits on the Isle of Portland because people believed that the rabbits were the ones that were burrowing into the quarries and would cause rock slides. So saying rabbit in on on the Isle of Portland is considered very, very bad luck. In fact, so bad that the Wallace and Gromit movie, Curse of the Were-Rabbit, had to actually change their posters for the Isle of Portland so they did not refer to rabbits. So that is where the name of that company comes from, which I know no one was ever going to get and is completely bizarre. And I promise that most of them are not that hard. <laughs> that one was just more for me to have fun. Okay, that's pretty much all I had to share with you. Um, Casey Wright on Patreon suggested that I take a page out of Allie Ward's book and give a secret about myself. If you don't know Allie Ward, you don't listen to her podcast, Ologies, 
do that. It's great. It's so fun. I think that if you like this show, you will absolutely love Ologies. She is hilarious. Um, and I have been thinking a little bit about it because, you know, Ali reveals so much of herself in her show, right? It's an interview show. She's interviewing scientists. You kind of get to learn a lot about her. Flash Forward is really different. You don't actually know very much about me. In fact, I, I posted a photo of myself on the Flash Forward Instagram page where I was wearing the like Flash Forward shirt that I just released. It says Imagine Better Futures on the front of it. And somebody commented being like, I don't know what I thought you looked like, but that's not what I thought you looked like. And I realized that like you all don't know very much about me as a person because Flash Forward's kind of not really about me and I'm not really in it very much. You hear a little bit, you know, you've you've met my boyfriend, you've met my dad, but you don't know that much about me as a human being. So um, Casey Wright suggested that I do this. And so I'm going to try it. Um, and again, if you have any questions that you think I should answer, I'm all ears. I will answer any questions. Um, but um, let's see, what should I say? Um, okay, I'll tell you my I'll tell you my secret for uh, being at a party and not knowing what to say. I don't know if any of you are ever at events and you're sitting around and you have no idea what to say next or how to like kind of keep the small talk going. Um, I find that very challenging sometimes um, because mostly what I want to do is just go into interview mode and like interview people and ask them about their lives and their jobs and stuff. But not everybody wants to like be interviewed at a party. So what my go-to strategy is, is to ask absurd questions. And so the one that I have been using recently that works quite well is this. Is cereal a soup? I know it sounds weird, but it's like the question is a hot dog a sandwich, but it's different. And so you can get into big debates about what makes something a soup. Does it have to be in a bowl? Do you have to eat it with a spoon? What about a bread bowl? What about soups that you sip? Is that still a soup? Does it have to be hot? What about gazpacho? This is a great trick for getting people to fight with each other and you don't have to participate. You can just listen. Um, so that's my tip to you. And that's my little secret. Um, Highly recommend. Please report back what you've decided if cereal is a soup or not. Um, this is very important to me. And um, that's all for this uh, bonus episode and for this sort of little mini season bonus episodes. I am doing a live show tonight, tonight, oh God, tonight at the Exploratorium. And so if you um, can't make it, uh, obviously, because not all of you live in San Francisco, I'm going to try to record it and try to um, release it in the bonus feed as well. Um, and that's pretty much all I have for you. Um, I will see you again, or I guess I will talk to you, talk in your ear hole again on May 14th, which is when the bodies season um, comes back. And then if there is anything in between then and now that I want to pop in on this bonus feed to say hi and talk about, then I will.